My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or a licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media, this is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is a reaction to episode 10. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Jane, host of Invisible Tears, and I am here with my two wonderful co-hosts, Amanda and her wonderful husband, Drew. Hey guys, how's it going? Good, how are you? Hanging on thick this morning, thank you for the card. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, doing great. It's a Sunday for us. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't usually do this on a Sunday, but talking about Blood Brothers on a Sunday. Here we go. Yeah, here we go. This is our reaction episode. Um, I like where she where she went with uh, this episode. Julie Murray uh, talking about Mara. As usual, she's absolutely amazing. We met Julie back in. February, me and Amanda did. And then Drew, you just met her this past weekend. In person, met her this weekend. That was yep. your first time. Yep. Julie is just the sweetest. She really is. She was in the service, so she's a tough chick. She's very much into fitness and uh physically she she is a tough chick. But she is just the sweetest, kindest person you could ever meet in person. And I love the way she was talking about Mora today. You know, how witty Mora was and and shared how, how competitive they were. Uh, but yet they were both their the biggest, you know, each other's biggest fans. You could tell they were very close, had a very close relationship. So I really, I really like the way she was able to talk about more in such a personal way. Her quirky notes that she sent Julie, and I thought that was really awesome for Julie to share with us. 
And then it, it very quickly got into the Moulton Brothers, which we've we've covered a little bit about in our podcast. Their names keep popping up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how much coincidence can can it can there be? Jen brings in a lot of coincidences with the Moulton Brothers, with uh, geographics, location, all that. It's a gives you something to to really think about season one episode 10 episode where we actually talk about suspects we actually don't end up bringing up the molten brothers in that specific episode only because we were really focusing at that time we were really just focusing on when you're actually deep diving into you know the connecticut river valley cases who is commonly referred to the Moulton brothers, I mean, if you dig, dig, dig deep enough, they definitely do start coming up in conversation, but they're definitely not, it's it's not like, you know, they're all over the Wikipedia like Nicolau was or or things like that. So we were really only focusing on those typically mentioned in conversation with the cases. So that's just one piece to understand that that's the reason why we didn't actually talk about the Moulton brothers is because when you actually research Morris case, yes, they are mentioned quite a bit. And there's quite a bit um, dealing with them with Morris case, but specific to the Connecticut River Valley cases, not so much unless you dig really deep. Yeah. If you go into some of the forums, the Moulton Brothers with the Connecticut River Valley cases, the Moulton Brothers come up quite a bit. But when we did our episode also with John Philpin, Dr. John Philpin, he too did bring up the Moulton brothers as a person of interest and that they were looked into somewhat. They were looked into by the task force, correct? I don't know whether they were actually questioned, but I think that they were a person of interest. And the task form was in 1986, correct? Yes. That's when it was formed? Okay. Yeah, if you go on forums, boy... People definitely bring up their names. And I think it's a lot of locals, like Claremont locals, that bring their names up a lot. Like Jen said, it's a large family. Almost everything I've heard (laughs) sounds like they're a very dysfunctional family. (laughs) You know, it's like we got two brothers and one's calling one out and the other one's calling the other one out. You kind of wonder how much... The two brothers really knew about each other because, of course, one is gone. One died. You kind of wonder how many other secrets did they have between them two, Uh, how much each other knew about the other. The whole evidence thing with that knife, with the authorities. Okay, I get the whole they want to keep the integrity of the case and, and all that, but... I mean, even if you can't use certain evidence or, or certain witnesses in a case when you bring it to trial, the least that they could do is look at this stuff and possibly give them a direction on where to go to do more investigative work. The closet, I mean, that is just crazy. So to me, it's like, all right, yeah, she was talking a lot about the Mora case. But to me, the way I was listening to it is like the lack of investigative work that they've done with the Mora case, with the Connecticut River Valley cases. It just goes on and on and on. It, it's just such a, such a cycle with them. It's so frustrating. 
Yeah. Specific to the knife, like you were saying, Jane, too, like I understand not wanting to compromise any sort of integrity. And I do understand that the possible like chain of custody might be an issue with that now. And I'm speaking, I'm not a police officer. I'm not in law enforcement. Fred was still standing there with a bloody knife. So not taking it into custody, he had to mail it to them. I understand even if the response back was because of the chain of custody that occurred with this knife, essentially almost like we can't do anything with it from like a legal perspective. It would suck, but I would understand if that was the feedback from it, but still like not even accepting the knife from him when he was standing there with it. Like this was given to me and he told me that his brother like uses, like he's involved, but not taking it. And also... With the cadaver hits and with illuminating that closet, I understand that the state police weren't the ones that conducted that. But given those pieces of information that they came up, I don't know why a formal investigation of that house never occurred through the state police based off of those pieces of information. I mean, cadaver dogs don't miss. And when you spray with that chemical, it doesn't lie. That's blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't understand why they could have been done more obviously well i'm not going to say obviously because we really haven't been really told one way or another but had they interviewed any of the moulton brothers ever with anything i mean you would think that they would be able to bring them in and do some kind of interview with them we don't know if they've even ever been interviewed i don't even think julie knows I really don't because of the lack of information they actually give her too, her and Fred. I could totally see Fred marching right up to his house <laughs> and uh, going inside and, and talking to them or talking to him. Um, it's too bad knowing that the brother's dead, that the other brother's dead. Larry's dead. Yep. Larry died of cancer. Yep. And and this other brother, Claude, I mean, you would think if he knew something, you know, you got you got you're sick, you're ill, you're you're possibly got cancer, and you got this father and sister of a missing woman that's been missing for years and years sitting in front of you, you would think he would give some kind of confession of this is where I think the body is. You know, this is where I think her remains are. And he just would not give. I I think that is just so sad. So sad. If anything, I mean, yeah, Julie and Fred would love to see justice, justice for Mora. But above all, all there really, really if ever wanted was to know where her remains are so they could give her a proper burial. They have some place to go to visit with her. And, you know, that would give them just that little, little bit of peace to know that she's in a resting place where, you know, they can go. If you know and you don't give this family that one little thing that they want, it just shows how evil people could be. It makes me really sad for them when I think about that. This might be a dumb question. In all of the history of the Marmara case from what you guys have listened to, 
Do you recall Fred supplying a DNA sample? Because it also sounds like Julie didn't have her formal sit down for until three years ago. So what would they be comparing the blood on the knife to? I don't know. That's actually a really good question. I don't think that came up, that ever came up in our conversations with Julie. No. So I would say, I don't know. Just because there's so much misinformation out there surrounding Maura's case, I wouldn't want to speculate one way or the other. It would be a direct question into Julie, but I don't believe we've ever discussed that. I do not know if they have a copy of uh, the Fred's DNA on file to for comparison purposes. They must have something because when I watched the documentary on Maura's case, they found that little piece of rug, I believe it was, and they sent it out to get tested because they first tested it for blood and they discovered that there was blood on, there was that little, or that little piece of wood. It was that little piece of wood. And they did test it, just, they did a simple test at the house to see if it was blood. They found out it was blood. And then they sent it out to see if it was human blood. I guess it was inconclusive. They did mention they did have some sort of DNA too to match if they found anything of Morris that they did have some sort of DNA to match. So I don't know if it, maybe it was uh, Fred. Yeah, I don't imagine it was Julie's because they never interviewed her all those years, which is crazy. It's absolutely asinine to me that she literally didn't sit down with them for an interview until three years ago. That's That blows my mind. It surprises me a little bit, but in a way it doesn't surprise me because look at all the family members of the Connecticut River Valley victims that have never been interviewed, that have never been spoken to by the authorities. Um, And there's a lot of them. So it kind of surprises me, but yet it doesn't. You know, I I wish I, I could understand their protocol and their procedures with investigating these cases because I just don't understand it. You have all these resources. You have family members and you have so much that you could use these resources and you just don't use them when you're investigating a missing or murdered cases. Does that make sense? doesn't to me. That's New Hampshire. Hopefully we start seeing change with that. I don't know. We're fighting for change. We're hoping to see change, but we'll see. To me, there's just so much more that they could do. I would love to know how much resource they have actually put into actually investigating the Moltons with the Connecticut River Valley cases. Be interesting. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Drew, did you have any feedback or any questions from the episode? or Not too much. It was just an interesting approach to try to tie Mara into the Kinnaker Valley's um, cases. I know when we looked into it originally, we didn't. I mean, I personally don't think that they're related, but that's just me in particular because the, the scene, the no body. I don't think she's actually was trying to tie Mora into the Connecticut River Valley cases. I think Jen was just trying to find a way to bring to light the Moulton brothers. And Julie was the perfect way to do it because 
she had way more information, more specific information about what kind of people these Moulton brothers were. So I think that was just Jen's way of bringing the Moulton brothers into how their person of interest with the Connecticut River Valley cases. That was my perspective on how I perceived her doing this episode. Because I think the next few episodes are really going to talk. She's going to really dive into the, the Moulton brothers quite a bit. And I, I think this was, she was thinking, okay, this would probably be the best way. Because they've already had experiences through Crowdspace with all the interviews she's had with Julie about the Moulton brothers. Because they've brought the Moulton brothers up a lot with a lot of Mora's case. So I think it was Jen's way of bringing the Moulton brothers into the investigation. Because the more Jen starts looking at the Moulton brothers, the more the Moulton brothers are become a person of interest with the Connecticut River Valley cases. It would make sense that that would sort of be her segue in because Julie has so much knowledge about them because of the possibility of them being involved with Morris' case. I just hope it's not another Nikolaus situation. Somebody who committed a crime over here and now let's try to connect the pieces to get it to tie to these victims. I don't think that she's really going on that direction because I think that she's, I think the way she's looking at the Moulton brothers is all right, there's this coincidence, this coincidence, and this coincidence. But now let's start, let's see if we can eliminate them. Because there has been so much talk. No, it hasn't been all over the internet with um, the Moulton brothers. But there has, I mean, I, I've heard you go to Claremont and the Moulton brothers are brought up a lot up there. The Moulton brothers are brought up a lot on forums. Much like the Kellyville resident when you talk to Kellyville locals. Exactly. Every town you're going to have that family that is the rough and rowdy crowd that gets into trouble and their name just has this stigma that just lasts forever. So, Yeah. And I think that's why Jen really wanted to dive into them. You know, not necessarily make them suspects, but knowing so many people have given them the person of interest status, I think she wanted to dive into that to see why why are people making these the Moulton brothers such a person of interest with, with the Connecticut River Valley cases. To sort of lead it some either like credence or not. So to sort of like just jump into sort of like the detail about them and see if there's something that would lead a person to say they would be people of interest or not. And why? Why is the community, you know, talking about bringing their names up a lot? I think that's what she really wants to find out. Yeah, it'll be great to hear more detail on that. Because right now, from my perspective, it definitely is a little trying to connect the dots, which, of course, you get. You're going to throw everything out there. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, in our suspect episode, the reason why we didn't talk about uh, the brothers or Mara was because we... We honestly didn't feel like there was any connection. But when it comes to like Heidi Martin, Delbert Tallman, we did talk about them because we feel a little bit more confident that Heidi Martin might be connected to the Connecticut River Valley, at least where our focus was during that episode. Yeah, exactly. But we also talked about Heidi and Delbert because he, he was officially charged for her murder. <laughs> 
and acquitted. Yeah, so the other thing is Philpin brought up that these brothers were persons of interest when the task force was formed. That meant that they were on local or they were on law enforcement's radars in 1986 and your attack happening in 1988. Kind of ballsy to be a person of interest and have that microscope on you and then commit another attack. But did they know? Were they questioned at all? Maybe they didn't know they were persons of interest. Philpin really made a sound like that they had been investigated. So it's one of those. Did, did the police conduct an entire investigation without actually speaking to them? How much information are you truly going to get out? Or are you going to actually talk to them? And therefore, if you talk to them, they're going to know that, oh, shit, law enforcement's looking at us for this. Do we just go a half an hour south and it's not going to get connected? I, I don't know. I guess we don't know what the task force did in investigating them, right? Yeah, we don't. We don't have copies of their files. One would think, with so many pieces of so many of these cases, one would think that they would be thoroughly uh, questioned and investigated in that way. Sometimes when they have a person of interest, they don't always want that person to know that they are a person of interest. So they'll just continue to gather information, gather evidence, without them knowing that they're being investigated. I imagine you could be investigated without knowing that you're being investigated. I I do know that sometimes they don't want the suspect or the person of interest to know that they're being investigated because it gives them time to change their story, look for, you know, alibis, do all this stuff to try to eliminate themselves. So sometimes they don't let them know that they're being investigated or they're a person of interest because they don't want them to be suspicious. That's a good point, and that would make sense, too. If they are tied to the Connecticut River Valley, was there truly that long of a cooling-off period of 15 years, or where the other murders that happened between 1988 and 2003? Right, 2003, is that when she went missing, Mara? Oh, 2004. February 9th, 2004. Have there been any other attacks that might be attributed to the to the MO, to the stab pattern, to the attack pattern between 1988 and 2004? I know we haven't been able to find any that look similar or anything like that. For there to be eight murders, at least eight murders in a 10-year period, and then nothing for, 12, uh, for 16 years, and then another attack. But like she said, more could have been um, not planned. Who knows? Who knows what these people think? Let's not forget, between the two brothers, alcohol and drugs played a big role in their lives too. You don't always make good judgmental decisions uh, when you have that part of your life. So raise a lot of questions. I don't really want to say that Maura's case would be connected to the Connecticut River Valley cases. But for the reason because of what you said, Drew, the time span from mine to Mora's, you do got to kind of ask why, why such a time span if they are connected. But when the two brothers talk about, well, no, it was this brother and no, it was that brother, you know, responsible for Mora, they don't ever talk about the Connecticut River Valley cases when they're blaming each other. I kind of question that, too. They bring up Mora, but they don't bring up the other cases. 
So was Mora a one-time deal if they were responsible for Mora's one or the other? Or were there others? Oh, because they really only bring up Mora's. Raised a lot, a lot of questions. I guess we'll see what else Jen is able to divulge and sort of outline in the next episode. So it can be a little bit more of like an all-inclusive picture. It really almost did seem like a pretty abrupt ending to this episode, definitely leading into further information, further detail in the next episode. So, yeah, I think she's really going to dive into who were the Moulton brothers. Yeah. You know, who were they? What jobs did they have in their lives? What interests they had in their lives, who they had in their lives. I believe they they've both been arrested at one time or another by the authorities. But it sounds like Larry's was more physical. To me, it sounds like he was more physically threatening others more than the other one. Yeah, I think she's going to talk a lot about their arrests, dive more into who they were, which would be interesting. I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing what she dug up about them. Me too. It definitely might help paint a little bit more of a picture of possibly the way or direction she might be going or based off of the details that she was able to dig up on them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking, and this isn't for the episode, but I was like, ah, if you look at like me and Marcus, Marcus has gotten quite a few arrests for bar fights and DUIs <laughs> and, you know, DUI waiting for fries. Yeah. <laughs> but you would know he would never actually hurt anybody. And then you have somebody like me who I've never gotten into a bar fight. Arrested was only underage drinking. Right. It kind of does speak yeah. to the point that, I mean, there there can always be there can always be individuals in a family that can sort of have run-ins with the law and that sort of thing and sort of get paint a bad picture on a family or a family name, especially in a small town. And it doesn't necessarily lead any sort of credence to the rest of the people within the family. But unfortunately, I mean, that with, you know, small towns, rumor mills, that can essentially happen all the time with with family members so yeah exactly and if anybody's out at a bar and they see marcus and ryan together they're gonna assume oh the whole family is <laughs> bash it crazy absolutely volume up to 12 just <laughs> fucking raging all the time so yeah yeah especially when those two are together so but that is not you or your sister at all <laughs> or mandy <laughs> oh that's yeah. true so my run-ins and, and my things that I actually did when I was younger was before I actually became an adult. I was I was pretty young when I had any sort of run-ins, you know, with myself. But I can definitely tell you that as far as like the rest of my family, they have a completely different personality and not a single one of them has ever had, you know, problems with the law or anything like that. So I could have also painted that sort of picture on my family, but none of them are like that. I'm just trying to think of like yeah, in every town you have that family where you're like oh they're just partiers they're fucking crazy they just and it very well might just be a couple within the family but that stigma just sticks and therefore that cloud just follows them everywhere they go yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's true certainly does i can easily name a couple of families like that in hinsdale where they're big families but there's only like one or two of them that really gave that family that stigma name of troublemaker or drunk or druggy or whatever or, you know. And how long does that stigma last too? With the whole family for a long time. Yeah. 
it's almost like a rumor legacy kind of, you know? Yeah, so true. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.